Tomorrow all the things were gone I'd worked for all my life And I had to start again With just my children and my wife I thank my lucky stars To be living here today Cause the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. And happy Independence Day to all of our American listeners. If you are listening to this on the day of release, it is the 4th of July. And I can think of no more appropriate person to talk to on the 4th of July than Lee Greenwood. Now, Lee has had a successful career as a country singer for going back 35, 40 years. But I mean, let's be honest, at this point, he's really the man behind what has become a sort of modern day, unofficial national anthem. God bless the USA. And think about what a unique situation he is in. I have wanted to talk to him for years because all Lee has to do is sit back and accept invitations to come sing that song at a rodeo, a fireworks show, a state fair, a NASCAR race, a presidential inauguration, whatever it may be. Now, in talking with Lee, you realize that there's a lot more to it than that. That's not all he does. But he could, and I know of no other singer who could do that. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, that song has really sort of <clears throat> become co-opted or almost owned by the Republican Party. That's pretty much okay with Lee. He's a Republican. I think what unfortunately has has happened is, is the song is is not as unifying as he would probably like it to be. It's become sort of a symbol of, of a certain sort of patriotism rather than a national unified version of patriotism. So we talk about that in here. I, I'll admit, as I've made it very clear, I hate politics. I hate talking about politics. And I was not going to invite Lee on and debate politics with him. So this was my effort to sort of get to know somebody who maybe we don't see eye to eye politically but that doesn't mean that he's not a wonderful guy he's a great guy and i really liked him a lot and i hope that you will too and i hope that you can if you're not a trump guy or a republican or whatever i hope that you'll be able to kind of put that aside and just enjoy a conversation with a really nice man i like lee a lot i hope you will too he called me from his home outside of nashville I have a very, I, I think my memory is pretty vivid on this. I feel like I discovered you around the time that you appeared on Solid Gold. That's a, and maybe even Hee Haw, too. And that was kind of, you know, I was a little kid, and I was just sort of getting into pop music. And back then, there was, it was a real golden era of country music on the pop charts. There were people like you. There were Eddie Rabbit, Gatlin Brothers, uh, Oak Ridge Boys, you guys were sort of crossing over, and I remember you specifically because you didn't look like a country star. You didn't have a cowboy hat. You had you looked kind of like Don Johnson in Miami Vice, and you had the scruffs and everything, you know. And so it made a real impression to me. Not to mention your songs and your voice are amazing. So, I, but I was curious, how did you get started? Because I think it was your first album, Inside Out, that sort of broke you into the mainstream. How did you? What were your plans? How did you get going before that? Well, I'm sure glad you started with Solid Gold because there's a great story to go with that. Ooh, please tell me. But I think me. that'll be the final part of our conversation. Oh, good. Because okay. it leads okay. to God Bless the USA. 
which I think oh, is cool. a really interesting part of my uh, career. I'm from California. Mm-hmm. My father joined the Navy right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, December 7, 41. He joined in January. I was born in 42, and I had a sis- an older sister and of three years. She's still living and in California. Good. Okay. And I guess my mother and father really never agreed that he would run off and join the Navy because we needed every man we could get, and uh-huh. she had she was left alone trying to raise two kids. So she had three jobs. She was a piano player as well as a comptometer operator, Standard Oil, which is an early computer, mm. and then oh, wow. uh, a cleric at Southern Pacific. So she was working num- numerous jobs in order to stay afloat. And in order to do that, she... Well, they got divorced and and Mm. sent me and my sister to my grandparents in Sacramento, California to be raised. Mm. So I take all of that as as a positive because even Mm -hmm. though I didn't meet my dad until I was like 14 or 15, he did survive the war, and we sort of became acquainted. There was not a really close connection. And my mother and I really didn't have a close connection either because she was in and out of marriages and in and out of Mm. my life. So my grandparents were really my role models, and they really gave me total freedom to mm-hmm. learn music. I was also a sports jock. I, I played baseball, oh. and it was an interesting uh, fork in the road, which I found many of them later in life, but we all make those choices. It's, yeah. it's hours of boredom and moments of panic when you you know, you know have to do something <laughs> uh, that's, that's critical. Yeah. And I was scouted by the Dodgers. I'm only 5'7", and, and in those years I was about 140, dripping wet. So um, <laughs> I, I figured, you know, when I got my breaks was when I began playing in clubs. And I was okay. like 13, 14, 15, and around Sacramento playing in nightclubs and, and singing. My first song I ever sang was Mac the Knife. And there I became such a fan of Bobby Darren's. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. But I leaned also to the R&B singers, Sam Cooke, Ray mm. Charles. You know, I, I, I love that kind of feeling. Sure. Uh, we mm-hmm. were totally white neighborhood. And I didn't rub elbows with any other cultures, really, except Spanish. And there was some of that uh, in, in, our, in our area. But I left high school at uh, 16, 17 years old and went straight to Nevada, where I knew the money was. Uh, mm. There was nothing for me. My grandparents, of course, in the, at the other gener- the older generation, I wanted to get to young people. And, uh, and I didn't find them in Vegas, oddly enough. I did find a couple of friends who you know, became my lifetime friends. And you know you can count them on one hand if you're lucky. And yeah. uh, I still have one of those. But we had basketball in common and music in common. And so we existed for about 15 years as partners in, in bands, and I was equipped with music theory because my my teacher in high school gave me the opportunity to do that. And I started writing and arranging. I became the leader of several bands. I formed my own groups in Vegas. And just kind of running through that really quick, of the 20 years I was in Nevada, I had several opportunities to leave town. and go. I went to L.A., a star there, didn't do very well, and there's some there's other stories about that. Went back to Vegas, and I ended up really dealing cards in the casinos for a while. And then when I got my I really, I think most of my first really bright light, I was like 35 or so playing piano bar at the Tropicana Hotel, and I got an opportunity to leave town and go to Reno, which is where I started uh, uh-huh. when I left town. So I, I, I get this band, and we play for a review at the Nugget. At that time, it was John Esquaga's Nugget. I'm in the main room, I'm getting ready to finish that gig, and I'm going to go play piano bar at the MGM, and Mel Tillis comes in the main room. This is where the paths uh, cross uh, for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry McFadden, who was the bass player for Mel Tillis, was looking to get off the road. He'd been there 14 years. He was with Ray Price prior, and his wife was urging him to find an artist to manage. 
stumbles on me in the lounge and sees what I do. But it's my closing night. We don't get a chance to talk. I leave. They leave. And months later, he comes back with Tillis again, plays the same room, and asks a cocktail, which is where I went. And she mm. uh, knew who I was and said he's playing piano at the piano bar at the MGM in Reno. And mm. so he comes over to, to, to Reno, and we become acquainted. At that moment, it starts things in motion for my exit, my uh, exodus to uh, Nashville. Right. So we we wind forward a while. I end up signing with the um, Halsey Company, and which have always been the Oak Ridge Boys uh, manager, and still are mm. Jim Halsey. Mm. I come to Nashville. I do a demo with the Mel Tillis Band for BMI. I sign with BMI. It was about a month or two later. I signed with MCA Records, and at that time, Oak Ridge Boys, Barbara Mandrill. Um, Reba McIntyre, George Strait, we were all on the same label, struggling for the same attention. <laughs> and, right. Uh, we worked really hard in our career. I had 300 days on the road the first year. Oh, man. Um, you know, I, I tried to gear up, try to start buying, you know, vehicles. We eventually, in the first two or three years, we got the two buses, then uh, three buses and two tractor trailers. Carrying production, I worked with everybody that you mentioned uh, wow. Not just the Oaks and the Gatlins and Reba and Barbara Mandrell and I had a duet album, uh, yeah. which I wrote the hit song for that album. To me, you are the hand that I reach for when I've lost my way. To me. The sun that warms my day Just as sure as I'm sure there's a heaven This was meant to be No road is too long As long as you began to multiply. I wrote a love song for yeah. Kenny Rogers. It was on my first album. Why do people cry when they hear the word goodbye in a love song? Tears are sure to fall when you know they gave it all in a love song. Somehow two lovers Get a chance at a beautiful romance, and you wish it could be you. Cause everybody's needing what the singers all are singing in a love song. It can tear you. Friends a number of years. I worked with his uh, entourage. So, Were you always um, singing country? Just, just oh, sorry or? to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. You were talking about when you were younger how taken you were with people like Bobby Darren and Sam Cooke. Um, now, you can sing. You could sing. I've listened to some of your songs that are not necessarily country, and they're great. Did you become 
enamored with country music? Did you feel like that was the best fit for your voice? How did you make the you know the transition from an R&B singer to a country singer? Well, after 20 years in Nevada, I sang everything. Did you? Okay, I wondered about that. We were okay. kind of a rock band. My favorite band's Tower of Power. I had oh, a six-piece band with three horns. We had a show at the Bonanza Hotel called Flesh and Flush. Uh, mm. One was a comedy sequel of the rock show uh, where I had a ten-piece band in one and a six-piece band in the other. And we played MacArthur Park in the middle between the shows, which was a showstopper. I mean, so so no, country wasn't even on the horizon. My My only attention to country from Sacramento, California was kind of a West Coast version. I mean, it was mm. C&W in those days. It wasn't mm-hmm. country, it was country and western. Yeah. And when I yeah. first heard Ray Charles' uh, first album called C&W, I, would, I just said, wow, you know, yeah. that's my version of country. Right, and, uh, right. So I, I kind of... With a lot of soul. Yeah, okay. I guess it was that, that side of the coin. When things are starting to take off, you get discovered in, in Reno, and you get put you put out an album... And Kenny Rogers is recording your songs. I mean, what's the transition like from the struggling? Not struggling. You were probably a big enough deal in Reno and that you could have maintained a living and comfortably. And you get to be a musician professionally. What's better than that? But at one point, it has to sort of cross over into this much bigger success than maybe, maybe you dreamed of it, maybe you didn't. What is that transition like? Is there a day when you're sort of like, Wow, I I'm not really struggling anymore. I got some money in the bank. People are respecting what I'm doing. How how does that feel? Well, let me just say this: it was a tremendous struggle at times. Um, was, there was it a time when I moved to Los Angeles and I was proposed to be on Paramount, and mm. I was being produced by Jerry Fuller, who was Johnny Mathis' producer at Columbia. Mm. And they had made a deal under the table. It was over my head. I I didn't know what was going on. I signed a five-year deal with them. Gulf Western buys the label. I'm in Los Angeles starving, and they sold it out. And I, and I had my record sitting in a box outside their office. And, oh, man. Uh, you know, a box of them. And I'm locked in for five years. I can't do anything. Nobody wants to touch me. I have no momentum. I have no, yeah. no history of recording. This is my first attempt at it. And I'll never eat Jack in a Box again because that's you know, <laughs> awful. I sold Dixie Chicken in the Valley. And, uh, oh. Until we got to my last few dollars, and I ended up taking a really? job playing piano for the very first time in Great Falls, Montana, and uh, wow. of all places. And then I migrated to San Diego. Things got gradually better, docking the, ducking the bill collectors, and finally went back to to Vegas and finished out my tenure there until things broke. But I, wow. when things finally did break, it took me almost almost three years to get into the black. And oh, the really? Is, is because if you're going to compete with the major acts, at that point, we weren't making the kind of money they make now. And, yeah. and I guess every 20 years, there's another leap in income. You know, Seems I mean, like it. The Luke Bryants and the, and the people who make the money now, it's really heavy. And yeah. I can remember when Stevie Wonder had rented out the Omni, and his, last, his profit was the last 1,000 seats because the production was so heavy. And so we yeah. we learned that. I mean, I, when I toured with the Judds in Alabama and, and the Oak Ridge Boys, we carried our production when I could and used it when I could because it enhanced yeah. our show. But that's a heavy cost. And so it took me a while yeah. to get into the black. Wow. Jeez. Do you remember what your first sort of uh, indulgence was? Did you go buy a really nice car or go out for a nice meal? What was your When you realized when you got a big check – 
from whatever it was and you were kind of on your feet again, do you remember what your first indulgence was? If not, it's okay. I, I just mean, after how, I, I came to Nashville, because I can remember, uh, I, I remember buying my very favorite car when I was mm. playing in, in, in Vegas. And I, I guess I was, I was married to my, sec, my first wife, and, I'd, and we'd gotten divorced. And I had, a gig, I had a gig in Puerto Rico with a group called the Korean Kittens. And so, yeah, I know it sounds odd, doesn't it? And but I was a piano player conductor for the for the band. So I bought, without a job, a 1966 Oldsmobile Starfire. It was nice. gold with black leather interior. I will never forget uh, the day that I saw that car parked outside in the strip mall, and they had one of those sales outside. I bought uh-huh. it brand new off the floor, and drove it to Miami. And that was in 66, and we went right, right to Selma, Alabama, and had a problem with my tire, and they fixed it, and I went on. Uh, can you imagine the time frame there? I had Western no. plates. I had Nevada plates, fortunately, instead of Detroit. Or I might not have oh, made it man. out of Alabama. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. And so wow. then we, we had the month in Puerto Rico. I got my car and drove back to Nevada. And, of course, that you know things, things were up and down, up and down in your life. And yeah. I mean, my gig before I left for, for Tennessee – was at the Tropicana playing piano bar in the atrium. It was my room, and I could have it as long as I wanted. I was making $1,500 a week. This would be 1979, I guess. Wow. I mean, that's nice. a lot of money. And, and I told my publishers, which was Larry McFadden and Ray Pillow. Ray Pillow is a former Opry star, and they had a publishing company in National City, and they signed me as a writer first. And when I got the deal at the MCA that they didn't help negotiate, and I get the record contract, they said, we need you to move to Nashville. And I said, I'm not coming there. I said, I've yeah. got a gig here. It's paying my rent and some. I can put some money away totally. for the first time. And the yeah. record went all the way to 10. It was inside out. In a way, I'm glad it's over. Even though it's gonna hurt me once you're gone. I can learn to live without you Give me time and I can make it on my own Loving you to me came easy Now losing you will change my life, no doubt In a way in another way, it turns me inside out. And finally, I packed up my pickup truck with about 400 bucks and left, you know, for, for Tennessee, and that way I never went uh-huh. back. Where are you now, by the way? Where am I talking to you from? Uh, we live in Franklin. Uh, my wife oh, and I, sure. uh, Kim, yep. former Miss Tennessee, we married 25 yep. years this year. Uh, our cool. 18-year-old just graduated high school. He's going to TCU on a full ride for theater musical nice. uh, musical theater scholarship. And our older son just graduated Washington Lee University with a biochem major. He's going to get his Ph.D. in cancer research at Vanderbilt starting in the fall. <laughs> wow, you must be proud. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing Good for you, Lee. Yeah, considering Good for that you. Uh, his mother runs pageants and I'm a singer. <laughs> You've done okay for yourself, though. Yeah. There are sing- you're at the high- you're the higher echelon of people who do what you do, so that's not so bad. I so, think stumbling okay. through the social part of my life was the hard part. Um, really? How so? Well, here's the thing: like as a musician, 
you never have any security. There was never yeah. security. It was it was you get this gig and you and you and you try to get another one next week. And then sometimes you get one for two weeks. Like whoa, I got a two week mm-hmm. gig, you know. Um, yeah. Even in Vegas, when I was having my shows, they would be three to six months reviews, and I'd always have to plan for the next one to keep the band working. Sure. And I generally gave away my, gave away gave away my writing. I would write the show, mm. give it to the producer, just so my band could get the gig. Yeah. Did that a lot. It's rough there for a while until you get um, you know a foundation under you. Now, so speaking of foundations, I mean, 1983, you write. God bless the USA. It comes out in '84. You know that song alone now, I imagine, takes care of everything. But there has to have been a period there where it was just another song. I guess it's probably stood above the rest ever since President Reagan used it for his second campaign. Correct? Well, that's a very interesting. You would, you would, you kind of hit the nail on the head. But let me let me embellish that. Let's go now to solid gold. Okay. Oh, oh sure. This. Yeah. You, you'll love this. Remember when Chris Gustafsson landed his helicopter in the backyard of Johnny Cash to pitch him a song? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a true, true fact. Yeah. Um, I wrote USA in 83, and I was asked to do Solid Gold by Marilyn McCoo because we were friends, mm-hmm. and the Fifth Dimension used to come see my shows at the Bonanza when I had Flesh and Flush. Wow. And so I have two hits out. I think I had Inside Out, Lion, maybe Trick, maybe three hits. And they asked me to come do Solid Gold in Los Angeles. So I fly out there, and uh, they have a red eye that comes back to Nashville. I was on it at the next that night at 1 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. actually happened to be the, the night of the fires, of the riots in uh, oh, Watts. Interesting. So it's Halloween night, I, and I sing a couple of hits. I forget what they were. And Marilyn gives me a hug and a bottle of champagne at about 9.30 and says, you know, thanks for coming. See you later. So I go and I get my limo. I've got four hours to flight. I'm mm. like, you know what? I've got this cassette in my pocket of God Bless the USA. I've been listening to it and learning it for stage. We hadn't had it yet. This is October 31. I just wrote it about two weeks prior. I mm-hmm. kind of like it, you know, and, and so I, I asked the driver, the little, I said, where does Irving Azoff live? And he <laughs> said, you, you do know who that name is? Oh, sure. Okay. I just think it's so, funny that you just think you could just pop over to Irving Azoff's house. Yes, on Halloween night. And so, sure, right. so the limo driver says he nixed to Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond over in Hollywood. At that time, there was no gated community. So I, okay. I said, take me there. So we pull up in front of his house. Uh, there's about, uh, I'd say, 10 yards between the curb and his front door across the lawn. He mm-hmm. is standing in the doorway. His three little kids, in, dressed in bumblebee outfits, are going trick-or-treating, and off they go. He does not move. I get out of the limo, and I walk over to him, right up to him to his front door. I have the bottle of champagne in my right hand, and I pull out the cassette in my left hand. What do you think I said? (laughs) Trick or treat. That's it. Good man. Really? Yeah, first person who ever got that. Trick or treat. (laughs) Nice. So his comment was, who are you? Uh, Yeah. And I I said, I'm the great one. I'm on your national label, uh, country artist. And he said, oh, yeah, come on in. He invites me in while his kids are out trick-or-treating. And so we go in and says, so, you know, what's, what's the occasion? And I said, well, just finished Solid Gold, and I thought I might take this opportunity to play a song for you that I have just written. And so he takes the cassette, puts it in the cassette player, and listens to the entire three minutes and 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. He says, interesting. He said, do you have a project? Well, not only did we have a project, 
it was on the album You Got a Good Love Coming, which was the next release. We'd already mm-hmm. filmed the video for 25000 at the London train station, and Patrick Duffy was my guest. I played mm-hmm. sax on it. It was one of those really cool kind of R&B approaches to country music. It was mm-hmm. our next release and scheduled so, because Jerry and I, our Cr- Jerry Crutchfield, my, my producer, never wanted L.A. opinion about anything. Oh, really? Because Interesting. all of the country label, we're on a separate profit margin. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want L.A. to have any influence on what we did, and we were very good at it. But, as you pointed out, I'm kind of a crossover artist. I love James Taylor. I love Elton John, mm-hmm. you know, Billy Joel. I mean, you, you, I could name you the artists that I really love that had influences in my life. People, Bryson, sure. uh, you know, even Barbara Streisand. You know, I, I got mm-hmm. it from all sides of the coin. Right. So he says, um, when you when you finish the project, bring it to me. I'd like to hear it. That's kind of a struck a dagger in me because I wasn't sure now how to proceed. So I come home, mm-hmm. talk to Jerry. Jerry said, well, he said, let's just do this this one time because we had like, three albums and a Greatest Head album already on the charts, and we were hotter than hell. I wrote that song for Kenny Rogers. It went number one around the world. That was a love song. And mm-hmm. then um, so we were like, okay, let's take this to L.A. and see what happens. So we fly out to Los Angeles, go to the boardroom, give them the entire project. They put the reel-to-reel on. It was pretty funny. And um, listen to the whole album. Mm-hmm. When it's done, and there's like eight or ten of his staff there who are, you know, they have Brian Adams singing motion picture themes and da-da-da-da, all the things sure. I really wanted to do. And right. he said, what do you think ought to be the single? Ask me that question. I'm really not, you know, I, I, I rarely would be hesitant to say anything i kind of got a, uh-huh. a quick opinion but for the first time i said you know i'll let you make that choice and i kind of looked at mm. jerry and he kind of nodded you know so he said i think it should be god bless the usa there you mm. have it yeah i mean i had wow. no idea i mean that wasn't at all on the horizon you weren't thinking that that would have been the right single well not only would it not have been the right single we already had twenty-five thousand invested in a song in the in the can that we knew was going to be a hit yeah true and it was mm-hmm. Uh, good luck coming. It's a, you can look it up on YouTube. Knock, knock, baby, guess who's here? I've come to make one thing clear. No more heartaches, no more fears. Tonight, the night they're gonna disappear. Cause you've got a good luck coming. early on. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And so wow. we came with USA, but 
I had already put it on stage a couple of times, John, and uh-huh. you know when you're hot and you come with a new song, the the, the crowd's going to cheer. They're going to scream, "Oh, great! A new song we heard on the radio. Oh right. my God, that's wonderful!" And they cheered. But USA was different. They hadn't played it on radio much yet. But when it hit radio, the only thing they did wrong at Universal was they released it too late. So when it got to July 4th, which would have been the peak, they missed the point, and so it never got into the number one position. Interesting. Yeah. With many records, if they don't make number one, they're long-running records, and uh, True. that's what happened. I mean, it just became eternal. You know, I'm thinking, uh, it occurred to me just now that it's almost, it has a similar life as what a, uh, what a Christmas song might have. Exactly. It's sort of a Christmas standard, you it's know. You know this particular song, yes, this particular song is going to get played every year, but the part that I'm curious about is that when you wrote it, you were just writing another song. You know, if someone who sets out to write a Christmas song, that's very specific to Christmas. I don't know that you set out, maybe you did, set out to write the perfect Independence Day song. No. Or I were did you not. just, this was just another song, but it's become co opted for all of these very patriotic moments in our country's history for the last 35, almost 35 years. You know, you probably couldn't have envisioned that when you wrote it. Or recorded it, I'm guessing. No, I didn't, and, and I and I never intended it to be a record. I mean, lots of artists. I'm, I'm recording a CD for in, in this fall that'll be for my wife when I'm gone. It'll be all of my mm. original songs. When I have about, nice. I'm only going to put about 20 on it. I have about 160 that I've written, but 20 of my favorites that some you've never heard. And that's mm. a, you know when you discover an artist. And and after they are passed on, you suddenly start digging out these songs. And, oh my God, why wasn't that one released? Why wasn't yeah. that it? And uh, USA was going to be one of those. It wasn't. It wasn't meant to make a statement. It was something mm. that I just believed in that I wanted to do uh, for my yeah. personal records. And okay. when we we put it on the You Got a Good Love Coming album, Jerry and I said, Well, let's go ahead and add it so we can have a discography of it. Mm. But um, and interestingly enough, I was the first artist to record, record Wind Beneath My Wings. It must have been cold there in my shadow To never have sunlight on your face You've been content to let me shine You always walked A step behind I was the one With all the glory While you were the one With all the strength
we won a, really? a Grammy for IOU, which was on the same album as Wind. Wow. And yeah. then it was recorded. Wind was recorded by five other artists, including Bette Midler, who sang it at uh-huh. Yankee Stadium when I sang USA at the Fireman's Memorial right after the attack Crazy. on America. So we wow. released that CD in Europe called The Wind Beneath My Wings and took You Got a Good Love Coming off that album. Interesting. I didn't know that about uh, Wind Beneath My Wings. That's crazy. Yeah, Larry wow. Henley said he liked my version the best, but it was recorded by Gary Morris, Sheena Easton, Gladys mm-hmm. Knight, Lou Rawls, and then Bette Midler. Yeah, I remember a couple of those. I think I remember the Lou Rawls one. You know the cool thing about that is Gladys Knight and I uh, sang it as a duet to open up the Atlanta Dome when the Olympic torch came from Europe. We had a 30-piece orchestra in Atlanta from Nashville, and we sang it as a duet. And uh, and then, of course, I sang USA at the closer, and the the Olympians got up and sang with me. But but I'll never forget that. It's kind of cool because I was such a fan of Gladys Knight. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So when I uh, when I I first remember, uh, I think it was the summer of 1992, and I was in Muskegon, Michigan, and it was the Fourth of July, and uh, I, every night for a week on the on the coast of Lake Michigan there was a big car- kind of carnival, and so every night there was the same uh, like laser show and firework display, and they would play the same songs each night and that was the song that they closed out the fireworks show with and that's when i became that's when i really became aware that this song is not just a single you hear on the radio that's nice and everyone likes it but it has deeper meaning and it applies to so many different events and that was 92 is that when when was when did you start to notice that the song would basically kind of get up and walk through life on its own you know it basically it's being used for rodeos and firework displays and you know uh patri- you know uh presidential inaugurations i mean it just it lives on was there a moment when you noticed it being used for things other than just being played on the radio oh yeah there were several and it and it kind of got leaps you know it just kind of went a little at a time and then got more and more and more uh, the events of course that that really struck america katrina the gulf war yeah. and then the attack on america but yeah. um I'm a Reaganite, and so as a as a mm. conservative Christian, when the Republican Party, or well, actually the Democratic Party, first asked if they could use the song at their convention, and let me just point out, it was Song of the Year at the CMA in 1985, and that mm. was kind of for me the the pinnacle, and that that we're done, cool. you know, let's yeah. move on. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I worked the Reagan campaign in '84, and again in '88, and then uh, the Bush campaign uh, as well, and. Those moments that brought me in front of the television and endeared God Bless the USA to the public, I think that's when it began to spread out. And, of course, mm. the National Guard began to use it. And, and it really was curious to me because I didn't intend it as a military anthem. I mean, right. it was one line in the song, I won't forget the men who died. Mm-hmm. It was a tribute you know, to all of those who paid the price. But, uh, sure, sure. But it has become that. Yeah, um, it sure has. Know, how do you feel about that? I mean, it's uh, you know, it's it's largely been taken in take, taken possession of by largely Republican politics. It sounds like you're a Republican. You don't, probably don't have too much of a problem with that. But I have a feeling when you wrote it. In fact, I think I read somewhere in an article that your intention was to unite people with Correct. a song like this. Correct. So the, yeah, the Democratic Convention sort of, that year wanted me to to uh, to fly out and sing it for them in San Francisco, and I and I turned them down. 
And then the oh. Republican convention asked the same thing. I turned them down. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't until Ronald Reagan's campaign uh, manager called and asked if they could use it in his life because he had used the song just like our current President Trump in a campaign yeah. kind of uniter thing. Um, okay. And I think politicians are smart to do that. I mean, they, you know, anything sure. they can do to unite the voting public. And, and I was kind of drawn in as the author, not yeah. necessarily as the singer, but as the author. And he, So that's a double-edged sword. You know, I, I'm still singing it, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm still yeah. the author. Yeah. Do you do you mind? Do you ever wish that the song had been uh, embraced equally by both sides? Or are you comfortable with where it stands and its place in pop culture right now? No, I'm I'm fine. But I I think most uh-huh. people realize that I don't use it on my stage or platform to say yeah. or to influence people on how to vote. Am I hired occasionally by uh, by the people in my party? That you know, yes. Um, okay. And and that's a little bit of an economic windfall. Sure, of course. But beyond that, I mean, I you know, I sing more more and more. I lean more and more now to taking care of the military. It just seems like okay. I've become their hero, and I I love doing that. It's my way of serving because I wasn't in the military, and mm-hmm. so I have a group that I work with called uh, HelpingAHero.org out of Houston. We build homes for wounded warriors. And, oh, cool. Yeah, we built like uh, 170 homes now in 22 states in eight years. Nice. Cool. We'll put a link to that in the notes for, okay, the, cool. for the episode. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so I want to ask you a little bit about the business side of all of this, and I'm going to do it sensitively. You can choose not to answer these questions. I'm really trying to – I want to be respectful. I'm not trying to be, you know, nosy or anything like that, but I do think it's, you know, something that – you and this song remind me of is uh, that guy who I don't even know his name, but he's he's the guy who announces boxing matches and wrestling. Oh yeah, and he sit, goes out yeah. and says, "Let's get ready to rumble." Oh yeah, and he gets paid millions of dollars to show up and say that line and leave. I mean, what a what a career you you know you've carved out for yourself. And and I wonder if there's I'm not equating the two, but I'm saying that you are in a similar position where people want to hear this song for their rodeo or their county fair or their Memorial Day service or whatever, and so they hire you to come sing it, I'm guessing. Is that correct? Yes, and in all types of uh, environments. And proudly, I accept this. I'm not, I, it wasn't what I – I'm an artist first. If I, la- if I list my talents, I would say I'm a, a musician first, singer second, writer third. Um, mm. And so so I've always pursued the art. I mean, I have a piano in my house. My, as a matter of fact, my 18-year-old plays it more than I do now. And it's pretty cool watching him develop as I developed at 13 and 14 years old, playing in my little trailer and farmhouse and a spinet piano. Um, uh-huh. So, yes, I accept that. I mean, I took my son Parker to Vegas, um, I think when he was like 13. We were walking downtown Vegas where I used to drive my 55 Chevy down uh, Fremont Street, and now it's encased with a canopy over the top, and they show videos <laughs> up on the canopy. And so uh, we're walking down the street where they now have a uh, zip line <laughs> past the Howdy uh-huh. Gardner sign, which I used to go in and play craps at night, and an American Pie comes on. And, mm. and so we're standing, everybody stopped on the street. They're all singing, bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Uh. Throw uh-huh. the levee to the levee when the levee was dry. And, and, and even my son, at that time, knew the song. And, really? I mean, you can, t- you can talk about any of those songs, Hotel California, yeah. The Eagles. 
sure. You know, Charlie Daniels and, you know, yeah. Devil Go Down to Georgia. What uh-huh. makes a career last? Well, you have to have that song. Yeah. Mine just happens to be national. Yeah. It happens to touch all lives, not just country music, not just gospel, but it touches everything. And that's exactly why I wrote it that way. Was Good. It, my Good. intention was I'm an American citizen. I want to be an ambassador for the country, and I want to mm-hmm. help you know, other people with this, not my career. I had plenty of songs to help my career. I mean, sure. look at my discography. So right. USA was just one of those. Did it rise above? Yeah. Sure. Maybe not as much right. as the Eagles songs. I mean, they had like five or six, if they could say, their right. career songs. Uh, does people right. remember It Turns Me Inside Out and that great performance on that on that album, Ring on Her Finger and She's Lying? Sure. Yeah. If they're really a country fan. She stood before God family and friends and vowed that she'd never love anyone else again only me as pure as her gown of white she stood by my side and promised that she'd love me till the day she died USA is so far above that. Sure. That appeals to everybody. Yeah. So how often, how many times a year are you hired to come sing that song for an event? I'm hired as an act, you know, to come and perform. Are you? Okay, so that was my other question. So is it more that you come put on a show and that's one of the songs in your show? Do you ever get hired just to come sing that song before a, you know, the Kentucky Derby or what I'm just saying, you know, an event, whatever it is, Sing that song and leave. Absolutely. Is, are there, there are moments like that too. Yeah, okay. I did the Coca-Cola 600 this year. I'll also sing the Army-Navy game in Philadelphia in December 9, and I'll probably sing for the Navy side because I usually do that. That's to be my third appearance at the sure. Army-Navy game. Okay. Um, and I do NASCAR events. I do our event. I sang the Predators game, as you know, they're hotter than hell. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, when they played St. Louis here, I sang for the yep. St. Louis Blues and see in St. Louis before. Wow. So uh, yes, it's an inspiration moment. And I don't uh-huh. come as a Nashville artist. I don't come as uh, as a country artist. And I don't come as a Republican or a conservative. Yeah. I come as an right. American. And when okay. I do that, interesting, and let me just add this. Uh, Twelve years ago, uh, Janet Pulitano came to me and asked me if they could use God Bless USA in the immigration film for new citizens. And I gave them that oh. permission for my lifetime. So when a new citizen who has waited seven years who has w- yeah. waited seven years to become an American, they hear the president's speech, the national anthem, God bless USA, they take the oath to the country, and just like a military person, and yeah. uh, and surrender the flag of where they're from. 
And so wow. all these citizens now, you know, happen to know who I am because of the film. So yeah. that's kind of an interesting. Uh, that's amazing. You could probably, maybe you even do. I assume you sort of make a really good living right now just singing the song at the events that you're, and your shows too, but you could probably, that's, that's become your career, I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, minimize the rest of what you've done, but as you mentioned, it, it has overshadowed everything to such a degree that it's, um, you're, the, you're the ambassador of this song that means a lot to people. You carry the torch, and when they want to hear it, they, have to, they hire you to come do it. You could, you could just sit back and take, take invitations to come sing the song wherever, and that's your livelihood, I'm guessing. Yes, but let me add this, that uh-huh. I'm 74. i got uh-huh. about five more years, and then I'm, I'm through. So <laughs> if, if I say to my wife, you know, I'm going to change the way I, I have operated. We've married 25 years. She she was there for the most of the heyday uh-huh. um, in, in our, you know, stadium shows. We had 25, 30,000 people. Sure. I just sang the Coca-Cola 600 for 250,000 people, and it's not the first time I've done that at a NASCAR event. Matter of fact, it was uh-huh. the first one back after the attack on America because, as you pointed out, I'm the first one people te- tend to turn to yeah. when there's a yeah. tragedy or a crisis. Or, you know, mm-hmm. let's get Greenwood, and then we'll get some of these other people, but they got to have right. him first. So, yeah. yes, I'm paid well for that. But if I don't sing all the time, my voice will uh-huh. go away. And really? so I've known that over the last 30 or 40 years. I am better when I work more. Uh, uh-huh. It takes me away from my home more than I, 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 I elect to. If I uh-huh. was just a speaker, oh, sure. You know, I'll yeah. take three days a month and make a great living. Okay. But uh, I have a band to employ. And so mm. I want to make sure I don't lose these great players who have been with me, most of, most of them almost 20 years. Yeah. And I don't want to, to lose them. So I keep working for that reason. We'll do about... 60 days or 70 days with the band this year and about 30 more in solo performances. So it's a mixture of both. There are yeah. times when you're hired out to sing the song and then there's plenty of other times where, like 60 to 70 dates a year mm-hmm. you're playing in a casino or whatever. You're putting on a full-flex concert. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Now, i got to ask you, um, you have a bunch of Christmas albums too. <clears throat> do you um, ever do specifically Christmas shows? Like, is that, you know, I think about, like, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Obviously, the holidays are a big time for them because that's when they're... God, I love the music, too. Yeah, right? So I wonder if Lee Greenwood goes out in, like, November and December and does a series of Christmas-specific shows. I do. You do? I had my own theater for five years, from 96 to 2000, in Sevierville, Tennessee, which is right near Dollywood in Pigeon interesting. Okay. And we had it from the beginning of November to New Year's Eve, we had a Christmas show. And it's all Christmas music. I'm very proud of the show. We have a full set that goes with us when we carry the bus and trailer. If I have to fly, I can't take the set. Uh, but then the venue will provide us with the trimmings for Christmas. But, yes, okay. it's an all-Christmas show, no country music, with the exception of USA. Okay. And the only reason I include USA in it is, well, I'd get lynched. But uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> the second reason is that I actually did um, – a number of USO tours at Christmas time, and, ma- and as a matter of fact, Kim, and my wife, and I, uh, when we were dating, was the first Christmas show we did in Iceland before we were married. So wow, yeah, she was huh. in Tennessee at the time, and yeah, good for you, Lee, Miss Tennessee. Yeah, sure. well, good she's job. a workout, and she oh, also uh, directs three states in the South, 
uh, for the Miss USA organization and has for 25 years, and that's uh, Tennessee, Georgia, and Mississippi. So she's probably worked closely with President Trump long before he was president? Yes. Okay. Okay. I don't want to get too deep into President into Trump, but I did. I was reading one comment you made in a, in an article that I read about you, where you were saying that you hoped he would stop tweeting after he became president. Yeah. And it looks like he's not going to do that. No, and, and <laughs> I, I I think it worked really well during the campaign uh, because mm-hmm. he kind of drew in all of the younger generation. Sure. But I think when he tweets things that have to do with sensitive government affairs. Uh-huh. It, it's perceived as a negative. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it's just who he is. It doesn't strike me as the most presidential behavior, but not much of it is. He's his own man. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it turns out. Now, one thing else also I want to ask you about is that um, you were assigned, I believe, by the last President Bush as a member of the NES. National Council of the Arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what comes with that? How did that happen? I think as a, as a perk. Uh, President Bush W. Uh, yeah. gave me the opportunity to be a member of the NEA. I could have turned it down, <clears throat> but I thought it was a a, a very nice um, plaque to hang on my wall. And sure. So I I joined the NEA, and we have meetings three times a year uh, to decide where the budget goes. And um, it's the NEA and NEH are kind of tied together. So we meet in Washington, D.C., and, and there's a 14-member council member, and it's a rotating council because it's a six-year appointment. But hmm. oddly enough, I was never replaced during the Obama administration. Yeah, I noticed that. kind of that. curious. They just yeah. never got around to it. And I, it takes a Senate confirmation, so okay. sometimes that process gets a little bit in the way of presidential duties. They, it just kind of browsed over me. And huh. so I've still been there, and so I had <laughs> six and twelve, uh, six and eight, fourteen. So I'm still on the council. I've been there longer than I think anybody who ever served, and uh, and there's no reason to think that I'd be replaced in the next uh, seven years. So. Yeah, yeah, boy, fascinating. What kind of what are your responsibilities on this board? What do you do? As I said, we we um, uh, issue grants. Okay. Uh, it, we have several subcommittees, uh, more than a dozen in the United States who who vet uh, potential um, uh, organizations, such as, let's say, we want to keep an oboe player in the San Francisco Orchestra, or we oh, support the New York Ballet, or we okay. have a fellowship, which is given to many artists in their later years because of y- their unique talents. And also okay. one of our duties is to nominate the uh, Medal of the Arts. We, we hone it down from all of the people we all suggest, all 14 of us make suggestions, hone it down to 10 and give it to the president. And okay. the president may or may not take any of them. Uh, right. So far, they've uh, every president that I've worked with have accepted our entire nomination scale. Interesting. Do we know anyone else on this board with you? You can look that up. It's easy to look okay. up. Um, okay. There'll I be will. a couple of names you'll probably recognize. Okay. Okay. Now, as part of your responsibility, um, you know, anything relating to keeping the arts in schools, that's such a hot topic, and it always seems to be, Right or wrong, I'm not criticizing in any way, but right or wrong, uh, the Republicans seem to always sort of want to be cutting that out more and more. I'm guessing as an artist and a musician, you'd probably like to see that stay in. Do you have any sway on that, or do you care one way or the other? We have those discussions uh, almost every meeting about do you really? the importance of art. I think our, our not the last chairman, but one before that, the last chairman, actually started tying art to economics and going to undeveloped communities 
and let's say there's a, a field somewhere and it's in a, an, a, an underprivileged area, they develop the field, they put in a baseball park, you know, or a playground or a concert a stage, and then through the arts they put people to work. So, mm. and, and then we also have Poetry Out Loud, which is a thing for kids in schools. It's a contest nationwide, and there are grants offered to that. Uh, a few other things that you know offer um, through the arts in a way to keep either add employment to people or enrich their lives. Okay. Okay. That's great. Good for you. Um, so I'm curious, though, too, do you ever feel motivated to make new music? I don't know how often you put out albums with completely new compositions, because it would seem to me, again, going back to kind of the business side of this, a person in your situation who has not only this song, but also, you know, a, a canon of songs that were hits and plenty you could you can play live, and you're so financially stable, you probably don't need to keep putting out albums, not that anyone listens to them anymore anyway. Well, but I'm good, curious what you do. That's a great point, John, because my, my boys both asked me that question, why aren't you on, you know, I don't yeah. know what they call it. It ain't radio anymore. I mean, radio doesn't get interested unless you get YouTube play or if you get yeah. – and I said, well, the investment, son, would be taken away from your tuition. So what's what you True. want me to do? Uh, <laughs> but um, but we do have Pro Tools. My bands, you know, all five of them have Pro Tools. And, and we are recording, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a CD for the fall that will have all my original songs. And we will make yeah. uh, a release of a couple of them on the Internet so people can hear them. Okay. And one of the most recent ones I wrote was last month. So uh, mm. we will continue, you know, that creative part. It's not okay. an interest like it used to be because it's easy to kind of sit back and go, well, they like me for what I do. And you know sure. Fats Domino told me that years ago when I saw him in a lounge in Reno. And I waited till he got off stage and I said, man, you've had so many hits, you know. I'm walking. Yes, indeed, uh -huh. I'm talking about you and me. And I said, so so how do you keep your sissy? He says, take care of the records, and they'll take care of you. Mm. But uh, he said also, don't change. Do the same uh, thing you've always done. Wait till it comes around. It's like the hymns of a dress. He said, it will come back. You know, And it's yeah. true. You see these, these uh, artists that have been around for years and years, and they had the final tour, and then 10 years later it's the reunion tour. And then it's like, I'm back tour. And, uh -huh. and they play the same music. I went to see Elton John and Billy Joel together in Nashville, and mm -hmm. all they did was play all the songs that they all made famous. I don't know sure. if they're writing anything new. Yeah, <laughs> but no. Elton's right. Billy's giving it up. Billy's <laughs> giving it up. You know, they like, yeah. played for two hours. Oh, okay. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so you're kind of, you, you, you're comfortable in your position now as kind of a legacy artist and yeah, playing the hits that people love? Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's, that's pretty sense. much my... You know, what I've been doing the last 10 years is making sure my, my two boys have everything they need. Sure. And we'll be flying to Dallas, Texas over the next uh, four years, uh, probably monthly, to see our, our young boy, Parker. Yep. And then uh, we'll be having lunch with Dalton and taking him, you know, swimming and trap scooting and all That's the things he, if he can do when he gets away from his work. Right. That's great. Well, look, I uh, I always close these, close these out with a couple of questions that I want to know. I'm curious, number one, if you have any regrets over your career, anything, a choice that you made somewhere along the line that you maybe wish you hadn't it would have changed things one way or the other. And then I also just want to know what your, what your tastiest memory is. When you look back on your career, maybe it's those early days trudging away with Mel Tillis in Reno, or maybe it's performing for 
President Trump's inauguration? I don't know, but you tell me. I'm curious what the answers to those two questions are. The only regrets that I have is that I got married too soon, and mm. and I wish I had not. And it, it, it's something that I drove home with our two sons, that if you have something that becomes more important than your life work, it will tend to deter your eventual success. Yeah. No, it didn't. I got lucky, but not everybody sure. grabs the brass ring like I did. Yeah. And yeah. so there were three marriages I wish I'd never had. Mm. Uh, there were a couple of children from those marriages, which I still are in touch with, and I love them dearly. But um, it was really a hard pull and such a distraction for what could have been a much more uh, developed career much earlier on, and I might have made some better decisions. Uh, My most outstanding performance, um, you know, and and it's really hard to exclude the White House because I played there twice. Uh Uh, The cat shot off the Kitty Hawk aircraft carrier and four times in in Air Force jets. you know, performing for the USO abroad, many of those are very moving times and and very tough. USO tours are not easy. Um, I would have to say, and it's, and it's not because it's more present in my mind, because I've sang for four different presidents, but our uh-huh. recent performance at the Lincoln Memorial for the inauguration week, when I got a chance to come out and sing the song that everybody wanted to hear me sing, they knew I was uh-huh. going to sing it, and uh-huh. uh, and I was the one chosen artist that got that platform for that moment. That yeah. probably was the one I will I will be known for or remembered for. There is a YouTube version of me singing right after 2001 um, at Yankee Stadium, and I wore the red, mm. white, and blue jacket. And nice. the only thing I regret is that I had black gloves on because I was so darn cold. I could, my hands were freezing. <laughs> and I looked back and I said, why did you wear gloves, you idiot? And then I remember how cold I was. So yeah, that was an oh, that's moment. great. Well, good. Well, Lee, I uh, I thought it would be really fascinating to get to know the man behind the song, and I'm so grateful that you talked to me. You're a good man, and I appreciate everything you do. People can feel however they want politically, but there's no question that you're you are at least are out there trying to do good, and I wanted to spotlight that. And so I want to thank you for talking with me. You're a good man, and I appreciate you you giving me the time. Well, thank you. You might refer to the three books we have. The first is called The Biography of a Song produced by Pelican Mm. Publishing. There might be some copies available somewhere. Uh, My wife and I wrote the song right after 2000. I wrote the book, um, Does God Still Bless the USA? It's Mm -hmm. a question for all Americans. And then our recent uh, project was an illustrated um, uh, copy called Proud to be an American, an illustrated book. And it's not pictures. It's it's for young kids to learn the lesson of patriotism. So those three are available on uh, Amazon. Good. Great. All right, John. Good deal. Thank you so much, Lee. There you have it, Lee Greenwood. I really like that one. In fact, I'm really proud of it because it's not in our comfort zone to talk to somebody like Lee and you think you know somebody, but you find out if you just, if you open yourself up, there's good people all over the place. Not that I'm surprised Lee's a good guy, but it's just so nice to have a conversation that's more heart to heart versus ideology to ideology. I really enjoyed that. I hope you guys did too. Now, a couple of things. Number one, I'm glad he mentioned those books at the end. I meant to bring those up, and I had it in my notes, and I forgot. So basically, go to LeeGreenwood.com. You can find out all kinds of information on those things. Also, he mentioned the HelpingHeroes.org website. I went there. It's under construction. Maybe it'll be fixed by the time this comes out. I don't know. Uh, But anyway, it's there if you want to check it out. It's just under construction right now. Also, I had mentioned that 
There were some of his other more rocking R&B sort of songs that I really liked. So I wanted to close it out with one. It's this one right here, Love Will Find Its Way To You. So I hope you guys like this. It's a little different than what we listened to in the rest of the episode. Now, in a couple of days, we're going to hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, be releasing a special bonus episode with Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. I, uh, I, I get to talk to him tomorrow, the 5th, uh, but I only get a few minutes. And so we figured rather than making it a full-fledged episode, plus Yan has the week off of work, we're going to put it out in a few days, again, if everything goes according to plan, as a special bonus episode. After that, the rest of this month is really my wheelhouse, my comfort zone. It is 80s alternative bands from the UK. So I'm super psyched for you guys to hear these. In fact, I feel really strongly about the next couple of months worth of episodes. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up, okay? Now, down to business. Please like our Facebook page, and please stay in communication with us that way. Message me on there if you want. You can send us a message at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. If you have not done so already, please go into iTunes and just write us a quick review. A lot of people have been doing this lately. We've increased by three or four in the last couple of weeks. I really, really appreciate this, guys. It's still not very many, but I'm so grateful for those people who take the time and say nice things. You can say bad things, too. That's perfectly okay. I don't care. But I'm grateful for the effort. Thanks, everybody. Now, as always, huge thanks to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for all the great work you do. Thank you, buddy. We will hopefully see you in a few days. And whether we do or we don't, we will definitely see you next Tuesday, okay? With an with a interview that I am very, very excited for. All right. Love you all. Happy 4th. We'll talk to you later.